Thanks very much indeed, Amy. Let's pray, shall we, as we look at that together. Do keep it open. We're going to open that up together tonight. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, the living word. Thank you that he is uh, the king and savior. And we pray that you'll show us more of him tonight. May we rejoice in him. May we turn to him. May we rely upon him through all that you have for us in this reading, but above all in him. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you have high expectations of people that occupy high public positions, you know, politicians or um, sports stars. You know, should should a a top footballer have a model private life as well as being a talented athlete? What do you think about that, I wonder? It's a kind of debate at the moment, isn't it? Cricketers and footballers and so on. Should a rock star live on celery and kale rather than drink and drugs? in their private life. What do you think about that, I wonder? And I think we've learned, haven't we, from experience, hard experience, that um, public figures, however talented they may be, uh, are, in the end, only human like the rest of us. They have their faults just as we do. Um, we, we say, don't we, you know, you can't expect too much of these people. Um, they're only human. And Luke, looking at Jesus, who, in, in a sense, is... Uh, not only human, but it's certainly human, Luke's raised our expectations of Jesus very high as we've looked at these early chapters of his gospel. We saw how around his birth at Christmas, the Christmas story, there were these extraordinary songs sung about how he's a fulfillment of prophecy, the saviour that's coming. We saw last time how as he was baptised, as John baptised him, and John said he'll, he'll baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire, never mind my water, as he was baptised, the father... God's father, Jesus' father spoke from heaven, said, this is my son. And the spirit came down on him. The spirit of God came down like a dove. So the father and the spirit were testifying to Jesus' sonship. And then we saw at the end of last week's reading um, how after the long genealogy of Jesus, we didn't read it, we didn't look in detail, but we saw, didn't we, that Jesus was thought to be the son of Joseph, though of course he wasn't. And then we saw Joseph was the son of the son of the son of... And it got, it got to the end. And at the end of chapter 3, we saw that the ancestors of Jesus went right back to Adam, who, if you see the end of chapter 3 there, was the son of God. And so you've got this thing going through those chapters of, is this really the son of God? And lots of things are being held up as evidences that he is. His genealogy, his baptism, the father of the spirit... The prophecy. And we come to chapter 4, and here's Jesus just now stepping into the limelight now. John the Baptist is kind of going off stage, and Jesus is coming on. And Jesus, the question is, with all these voices saying he's the Son of God, will he live up to that public expectation? Or will he blow it like the rest of us do? What will he be like when his true sonship of God is tested? He may be human, but will he live up to the claim also to be God's son, God's chosen king and saviour? And we're going to look at this passage tonight, three sections, really, three headings for this, uh, but the middle one is the meaty one, but the last one, very short one, is actually the most important, the real point. So the three headings of these, the first is quick, the tempter's motives, the tempter's methods, That's the big one. 
And then the tempter's master, that's the last, the important one. The tempter's motives, methods, and master. So if you look at verses 1 and 2, the tempter's motives, it's called the tempter as in the devil. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, verse 1, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. Where for 40 days he was tempted or tested by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. I love this kind of sense of understatement. And at the end of them, he was hungry. So here's the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into a desert place. It's not like a, a lovely spiritual retreat in a cathedral cloister. It's in the desert. It's a tough place for him. And in that wilderness, we're told it's not just that the devil's going to tempt him, but God the Father is testing him. This is a, a testing, a, a proving, a, a character formation season for Jesus. It's part of his preparation for public work. And we've seen, haven't we, already, and we see it again here, this special relationship between Jesus and his Father, the Son and the Father, through the Spirit that fills Jesus. Um, it's a special relationship. It's not like that one between Britain and the US, is it? which is the other special relationship, which is a lot about kind of mistrust and misunderstanding. This is about absolute love and loyalty, isn't it? The Son, led by the Spirit into the desert, submitting to the testing of the Father there. That's what's going on here. And I don't know if that rings any bells with you, but here we've got a man tempted to satisfy his desire to eat by a serpent-like character, the devil. Does that ring any bells? If you know your Bible at all, you're thinking, aren't you, of Genesis, of Genesis 3, of Adam and Eve in the garden, and of the serpent saying to them, try this fruit, the the fruit of uh, the tree of knowledge that was forbidden. And of course, again, have you ever read the story in Genesis 3? What happens next? They tuck in, don't they? Adam and Eve take of the fruit, they fall for the temptation, their eyes are opened, they realize they're naked, and they feel shame before God. That's what we call the fall of the human race. It all started with one man, Adam. Adam, remember, the Luke said, the son of God. The first son of God, Adam. And he blew it. And so here we are, it's almost like we're kind of back at that moment, and here's another son of God, a second son of God, and again there's the food tempting him, there's the the dignity of, of being made human and being God's son, and the temptation to eat what he knows he shouldn't eat. What's going to happen next? That's the big question here. That's the drama of this story. What is going to happen? What will Jesus do? So it's not just a kind of idle, oh, great story, let's see what he does next. This is an incredible spiritual moment in Jesus' ministry, in the gospel, in the Bible. The first son of God, Adam, blew it. What will this one do? Will he do what he's been called to do and obey his father? The great thinker Augustine, uh, around about 400 AD he lived, he developed the idea of what we call original sin. Um, He's often been misrepresented. All he meant by that was the idea that all of us in our hearts have like a bias not to love God, not to obey God, not to fulfill his will. We call it sin. 
Um, he said, original sin simply means it's in us all. We share it all. And it's a good reminder that temptation comes from different places in life. And a lot of it actually comes not from the devil. We can't blame him for everything, but from right in here. But at the same time, as this story reminds us, uh, the devil is a personally active evil being. Thought to be like a fallen angel in the Bible. Whose agenda, if you read the, the times he pops up in the Bible, is always to sow division and doubt in the minds of God's people, to separate us from him. And particularly in this case, to separate the son from the father, to break that special relationship they have. And you see, what's going on here? Why does he test Jesus here as as he's in the desert being tested by the father? Well, he sees that special relationship. He sees that a new Adam's appeared suddenly. He thought he'd won this one. He thought he'd tricked Adam and Eve in the garden. And that was it. The human race are in his grasp from that day forward. And now another Adam's appeared. And he's terrified. He sees the spirit filling Jesus with obedience to the father. He sees how his own rule over human beings is in danger of being destroyed. And so his motive, the tempter's motive, is to destroy Jesus' sonship before it destroys him. To destroy Jesus' sonship before it destroys him. And this temptation story, as we're going to see now, it shows us, in one way, just how like us Jesus is. It's extraordinary that here the divine Son of God is he's willing to submit not just to hunger in the desert, but to the temptations of the devil that Adam and Eve endured. He could have just said, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm too great. I'm God after all. He's just the devil. I'm God. I don't need to go through that, but he doesn't. He submits to it. That's extraordinary. He's no sort of cartoon superhero who strides across the page with a blaze of glory. He, He bleeds. He suffers. He goes through temptation. You might put it this way. Um, as you watch him here, you know, enduring hunger and weakness and thirst and temptation, uh, I jotted this down. He became one of us in order not just to rule over us, but to rescue us. He had to become one of us to do that, you see, fully one of us. He became one of us in order not just to rule over us, but to rescue us. So that's the, that's the kind of quick intro. That's the motives of the tempter. To destroy Jesus and his sonship before Jesus destroys him. Secondly, the tempter's methods. This is the heart of the story, the three temptations from verses 3 to 12. The devil gives these three tests or temptations. They're all designed to do one thing, which if you're listening, you now know what that one thing is. It's to undermine Jesus' sonship. It's to trick him or to force him into breaking his love and trust towards the Father. In a way, these three different temptations, they all anticipate the temptations that will keep coming through Jesus' whole ministry. Uh, Maybe the order of these is different in Luke from in Matthew. Maybe that Luke's put the third one here, the, the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, which is second in Matthew. Maybe he's put that here, people think, as if to show that the movement of Jesus' ministry And the pattern of those temptations will culminate in Jerusalem. In the Garden of Gethsemane. And in his arrest and in his trial and his death. 
maybe. But the point is, anyway, he's, he's seeking to undermine the sonship, the obedience of Jesus. And the first temptation, we'll just look at them quickly, each of them. The first one is in verse 3, to satisfy his physical needs instead of walking in faith. If you're the son of God, he says, tell this stone to become bread. If you're the son of God. He's not questioning there the divinity of Jesus, the sonship of Jesus. He's taking that for granted. He knows that. He's questioning whether God's son should be in a place like this, enduring suffering like this. You're God's son, he says. The world belongs to you. Why are you in the desert starving hungry? Surely you could just say to these stones here, become bread for me. Satisfy your physical desire. Of course, there's nothing wrong with food, and Jesus, once he's left the desert, he'll eat again. Food's a good thing, but as always, whenever we take something that's good that God's given us and we use it out of its proper context, it becomes sinful for us. So that's even true of food if the Father's told you to fast for 40 days. Oh, we do it today, don't we? Other things, perhaps, we, we make... Um, Perhaps we make food of God, actually. We we eat, but we do it excessively. Or we idolize a a new gadget or a car or something and and make that the be-all end. Or we take the sexual intimacy God's given as a gift and we use it outside marriage. And Jesus sees here the danger of falling for that, the physical desire to be satisfying it right now instead of walking in faith. Now, I said earlier that there are these two sons of God in the Bible. There's Adam, and then there's Jesus, the new Adam. But actually, there is a third one, confusingly. And that's Israel. Because this picture of God's son being tested in the wilderness, actually, that's in the Bible before as well. That's in the story of Deuteronomy. As Israel have, have been through 40 years, not days, 40 years in the wilderness, and Moses gives them this speech, which we call Deuteronomy which reminds them to stay faithful, and he calls them God's son. God says, this is my son, whom he's led through the desert. And Israel's there, and then they're kind of saying, well, we're still hungry, and we don't like God's food, this manna he gives us. We want to go back to Egypt, please. You see what they're doing? They, they want to satisfy the physical desire they feel instead of walking in faith. Adam failed in the garden. Israel fell in the desert, but... This son is different. This son does better. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. I think the footnotes will tell you where these quotes come from. All from Deuteronomy each time. He reminds the devil that the spirit led him into the desert to test his faith. He's here in obedience to the father. He's not about to eat. He wants to obey and walk in faith because he loves his father. He quotes from Deuteronomy. The the full verse in Deuteronomy says this. Of God. He tested you in the desert. This is Moses talking to Israel. He tested you in the desert. He caused you to hunger and then fed you manna, the the kind of bread they got, to teach you that man shall not live, and this is the bit Jesus quotes, on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God's mouth. That's the point again. That's what Jesus knows. What matters right now is not the physical desire I feel, however, right that could be at other times but it's the walk in faith that's the call for this moment.
Jesus is saying, I want this testing to prove my sonship, my obedience. The promises of God satisfy me more than a plate of chips. That's the first test, the desire to, to satisfy physical need right now. The second one is satisfying the desire for glory. The devil takes him this time uh, in a vision and shows him all the nations of the Roman Empire. From east to west, from north to south, a vast, huge collection of nations, all of those peoples, all of that wealth. And he says, Jesus, um, I've got the power to give you this to anyone I want to. In fact, if, if you will just worship me, the whole lot's yours. Verse 7. That's the kind of crunch, isn't it? If you worship me, it will all be yours. It's a very subtle temptation. Of course, the devil's he's lying, really. He doesn't actually own the world. He's got the, the allegiance of the world's nations because we give it to him by choice in our folly. We're foolish enough to, to follow the devil. Um, but you see how subtle this temptation is? Even if it's a lie, it's still subtle. All this glory and power is yours, he says. All you've got to do, tiny thing, Jesus. Just, just bow down for, to me. We'd be a great team, actually. It's all my stuff. Just bow down to me, and I'll make it all yours. Think of the glory. Think of the power you'll have. And small compromises in life, you know, whether it's at school, at college, at work, they always sound like this, don't they? They always sound, it's such a small thing. I haven't got to go any further than that. I, I'm not going to have to write down here that I don't believe God exists. Just, I've just got to bow to him for a minute. It's a small thing. And yet Jesus knows it's not a small thing. Uh, he doesn't get into debates, does he, with the devil in any of these temptations. Um, no getting drawn into discussion here. He just quotes the Bible back at him. Worship God and serve him alone. Another quote again from Deuteronomy 6. Worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only. Again, that's Moses speaking in Deuteronomy. As the people um, are looking to enter the promised land and they're going to be surrounded by lots of other temptations and gods. And Moses says, look, you're going to have lots of compromises thrown your way in the next few years. Remember this. Worship the Lord and serve him only. Not a bit of career and a bit of even worshipping family and a bit of worshipping my self-image. And I'll squeeze God in around that. But no, worship the Lord and serve him only. Don't compromise. It's a very subtle temptation, and Jesus just throws it back. So the third one, the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem, stands him on the roof of the temple, um, and it's probably the part of the temple where there's a a big drop-off into a valley down the side, and he says to him, look, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, because doesn't it say in the Bible, that you keep quoting back, in the Bible, Psalm 91, doesn't it say, he'll command his angels concerning you, to protect you, to guard you, and they'll lift you in their hands so that your foot won't even strike a stone. Look, your Bible says that. Your father's word that he gave you that you trust. So go for it. Prove it. It's a very compelling way, isn't it, to lead someone astray. The devil knows. He's very clever. You know, He's not good, the devil, but he's good at what he does, isn't he? He quotes the Bible at us. And again, you will find this. People will 
tell us that we're simply doing what the Bible says, when actually what they're doing is he is here, they're twisting the Bible out of context. And the devil takes these verses and makes them mean something that they never meant in the original. Psalm 91, it's a promise to the one that trusts God and walks in faith that he will always protect you. It's not saying to us, throw yourself into danger and demand he rescues you and he will. It's wherever he puts you, walk in faith and he will protect you, particularly speaking to God's son in the context. So it's not so much a leap of faith, actually it's a leap of unbelief this, if Jesus does it. It's a leap of arrogance, um, of demanding God proves his love. And that's the temptation. And we have it too today to demand that God proves his care for me rather than just trusting that he does. So again, Jesus quotes back from Deuteronomy 6 where Moses calls Israel to trust in God's care and not to demand it. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Trust him, don't test him. Trust him, don't test him. And of course, it's particularly deeply ironic with Jesus. He's saying that far from throwing himself into danger so that the angels can rescue him and stop him getting hurt, he's actually, ironically, going to throw himself right down into death itself. Rather than test the Father's love, he'll submit to the Father's will. So, What's this mean for us, these three temptations, that the desire to satisfy physical need now, the desire for glory, the desire to test and prove God's love? Well, in one sense, Jesus is our perfect example of how to face temptation. These are, they speak to us, don't they, very personally. And if you're going through a difficult time at the moment and you're really struggling with that one of those or another temptation, the desire um, to feel secure, in God's love, when you sometimes don't. The desire uh, to be recognized for who you are and the talents you have. The desire, perhaps, to just to kind of go ahead um, and satisfy a physical need that in the right place is good, but in the wrong one is not. These are really powerful stories for us, aren't they? Jesus has walked through these for us, and he's given us, hasn't he, some great pointers on how to deal with temptation. Don't trifle with it. Just quote the Bible back at it and walk away. Um, Flee from the devil when he comes near. Don't start getting into conversation with him. Don't trifle. Don't compromise. Some great wisdom here for us, isn't there? But actually, you and I will fall for temptation sometimes, perhaps often. And in a way, this story doesn't help us all that much because... Sometimes we'll just fall. We'll blow it, as Adam did. And what we need in that moment is is not simply a story to kind of make us feel even worse about ourselves, but we need a saviour in those moments, don't we? We need someone who doesn't fall for this temptation, who doesn't blow it. And that's the good news of this story. That's the point of this story. That's the point of Luke's gospel. There is a saviour. There is a man who's done this and walked through it unscathed. 
there is someone that can rescue us by choosing obedience instead of glory, by laying down his life instead of demanding God save it. There is a saviour who chooses obedience instead of glory and lays down his life instead of demanding God saves it. This is how I kind of summarize that for myself. As God's perfect son, Jesus is all that Adam and we were called to be, but could not be, so that by his death and resurrection, we may one day become what he is. Jesus is all that we could not be as human beings. But he is all of that so that one day through him, we may become what we were made to be. New in Jesus, the second Adam. So you see, if you're here tonight and you're exploring faith and wondering about all this Jesus and God stuff, there is no more important message that you or I could explore and think about and read and speak to our friends about than this. This is about our calling as human beings, what we were made to be. This is about how to live a good life instead of always blowing it. This is about things like forgiveness and hope. So do keep coming. Pick up a Luke's Gospel and read it for yourself. It's an extraordinary book. We've got them there um, on the book table for a pound. Bargain. And come to the Discover Group we've mentioned um, this Tuesday night, this Wednesday morning. Because we have a great saviour. And that's really the third point. Very briefly, the last one. It's a quick one. The last verse. We've seen the tempter's motives. We've seen his methods. We've spent a lot of time on that. Now what about the tempter's master? This is the good news. You see, Luke finishes with this very simple sentence. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Slightly ambiguous what it means there, isn't it? Um, But the point is this. The devil will be back. This isn't the end of Jesus' opposition and having to resist. And it's not clear. Some think Luke's referring here to this opportune time, to the climax, the, the real crunch time in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is faced with a temptation not to go through with betrayal and death. And he says, no, your, your will, Father, be done. Could be that. More likely, people think, this is a reference to the whole ministry of Jesus from this moment, from the desert through to the cross. Jesus' ministry will be one of facing the devil, always snapping his heels, trying to draw him away from his sonship, and his obedience, but always resisting it because he's the saviour. He's the new Adam. You see, the devil's day is done. That's really the point of this story. The devil's had his day running the human race. His power is broken. Jesus has beaten him here in the desert and he will one day completely destroy him on the cross. The Son of God has proven his credentials to defeat evil, to rescue humanity, to redeem creation, and one day to reign over it forever. So as I close, it was about 500 years ago that the German monk and church reformer Martin Luther called the devil God's servant. Yeah, he called the devil God's servant. Is that extraordinary? No, he's God's enemy, surely. Well, he's right. He had a point. He said, the devil is subject. Every time he appears in the Bible, he's still subject to the power and will of God. This is really important. It's his way of saying, don't be afraid of him. Resist him, 
Walk away from him, but don't be afraid of him. So he said this. Why should you be afraid? The devil is God's devil. He's pressed into service to do God's will in the world. He does have powers, but knowing that, that those can only be exercised under God's direction gives us hope. Why should you be afraid? Do you not know that the prince of this world, that's the devil, has been judged? Jesus says that. He is no Lord anymore. You have a different, stronger Lord, Christ, who has overcome and bound him. Therefore, let the prince of this world look sour, bare his teeth, make a great noise, bark and threaten. He can do no more than a bad dog on a chain. It's a great picture, isn't it? That's the devil. That's biblical. He's like a dog on a chain. No more than a bad dog on a chain which may bark and run here and there and tear at the chain, but because it is tied and you avoid it, it cannot bite you. Isn't that great? So he says the devil acts towards every Christian. The chained dog can frighten us, but he cannot harm us. That's the tempter's master. The Lord Jesus is Lord. Let's be still for a moment now and pray, shall we? And uh, in a few moments, I'm going to hand over to Rob Caniff to lead us in intercessions. But let's pray just in the quiet for a moment and ask God to perhaps to speak, to deepen understanding, to reveal something perhaps from tonight's passage, to reinforce a truth that maybe some of us are feeling very weak. Some attempted... Um, to give in to material, physical temptations. Others just tempted by the trials of life um, to deny and doubt God and his love. Others perhaps know someone who perhaps is feeling very frail in faith and needs to know that Jesus is the Lord and Saviour. May we know that the devil, though powerful, is with Christ around us as Lord, no more than a dog on a chain. So we thank you, Lord, for your courageous, humble, sacrificial life. You became one of us, even to suffering, hunger and thirst and temptation. And we thank you that though we experience weakness and temptation in the same way that you did, unlike us, you have never for a moment given in. That your power is greater than our weakness, your power is greater than any power the devil has. So, may you surround us. May you go before us and behind us. And may we rest in the security of the victory that you have won. As Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, Lord of all. In Jesus' name. Amen.